my name's Whitney High. I've lived with that name for 42 years. Uh, I'm a uh, dermatologist first, and then I went on to become a dermatopathologist. I practice a little bit of both uh, uh, specialties, and I think it makes me better at each one, to be honest. So, so the purpose of this lecture today is to kind of cover everything else that isn't psoriasis, because we tried to organize the days based on like dermatitis, psoriasis, tomorrow will be skin cancer, things like that, so that they had a unified theme, thinking that that would build stronger neural networks and more learning. Um, but it's important to think that, you know, not everything that's scaly is psoriasis, although it might seem like that based on this morning. So the purpose of this is just to kind of give an overlay of the land and to provide a, a differential diagnosis that includes other things beyond psoriasis. So, so of course, we're talking about papulosquamous disease. And, and at the really most basic level, you know, we all get those phone calls from from, from people uh, when you're on hospital service, things like that at the university that, you know, they say, I've got a papulosquamous morbilliform uh, uh, bullous condition. And you say, well, ho hold on, w w which did you mean? Uh, because they're just trying to spew out as many words as they recall from their first year of medical school. And, and so it's important to remember that all these words are words of art to you and I. They all have a certain meaning. And when somebody says something, I start working one differential versus another. So we're talking about papulosquamous diseases, which is palpable elevated skin lesions that should be scaly. You should be able to feel papulosquamous uh, disease with your eyes closed. So if you pass your fat finger over a macular disease, you won't be able to feel anything at all. Vitiligo is the classic macular disease. If you pass your finger over papulosquamous disease, you should be able to, to tell that something's there. And psoriasis is probably the classic prototypical papulosquamous disease. So that's what we're talking about. But there's a whole bunch of diseases that would fit under the rubric of papulosquamous disease. And I've listed many of them, but I could give a two or four hour lecture on this easily and only have one hour. So uh, we're going to try to cover some of these, not in the most excruciating detail, but just to kind of give an overview of the lay of the land. So the first thing I'm going to talk about is seborrheic dermatitis. I give lectures all over the world all, all the time. I probably travel twice a month. Um, but seborrheic dermatitis could be covered in other areas of dermatology. It could be considered a dermatitis and talked about with nemular dermatitis and all those other things. But the only reason I wanted to mention it now is it often affects the, the scalp and the head and neck, and it's often in the differential diagnosis of psoriasis, which is kind of the theme du jour. Uh, so, so there's all these different theories about why one gets uh, seborrheic dermatitis, whether it's a, a yeast called pterosporum that's a normal skin commensal, whether it overgrows and causes irritation, or whether there's some abnormality of sebum, which is pterosporum's food source, and, and whether the, the overgrowth of the pterosporum is, is because of the increased sebum, or whether it's some kind of hodgepodge of all these effects. Certainly there are people, families that are more often affected. There are certain diseases like Parkinson's disease or neurologic disease where seborrheic dermatitis is more, more evident and more recalcitrant to treatment. So all of these theories have some, some probable validity. We don't know which one is actually correct. We certainly know how seborrheic dermatitis pre presents, and it presents differently in an infant versus an adult. In an infant, it presents very early uh, as what we call cradle cap, and I hardly see any cradle cap because my wait time's too darn long. So, so uh, if you make an appointment to see me for your cradle cap, by, by the time I see you, the cradle cap's largely resolved it, itself. So it's not something that comes up a lot for me, but it has other terms like napkin dermatitis in, in Britain and things like that. They call it different things. This is a typical example with that greasy yellow scale on the, on the head that we call cradle cap. And the baby doesn't look particularly distressed or anything, do they? Uh, it's not a horrible, horrible disease. It usually resolves itself as the maternal androgens go away over time. Uh, this is a nice example of, of seborrheic dermatitis in the diaper area. And you can kind of compare and contrast this and explain it to people. 
and distinguish it from just diaper dermatitis or irritant dermatitis because seborrheic dermatitis usually affects the skin folds. And why would that be? Well, because it's an endogenous inside-out type of, of phenomenon. It's normal things that happen to normal skin. Uh, and so it affects the skin folds, whereas irritant dermatitis, diaper dermatitis from urine and feces and things like that, generally will spare the skin fold because the skin's all close together and, and the, the material isn't contacting it. So that's an important thing to look at in an infant to try to decide is this seborrheic dermatitis or is this just irritant dermatitis from urine and feces uh, based on whether the skin folds are spared or involved. In adults, uh, it typically begins after puberty because you have to have the right androgen milieu in your body to get these sebum glands to secrete their sebum and get the whole process started. So it generally presents in a seborrheic distribution. You can kind of pretend you're Nostradamus with your, with your patients and say, let, let me guess, you get a whole bunch of itching and scaling here and through here and around the ear. And they say, gosh, you know my problem exactly. And you say, yeah, this is the 15th time I've treated it today. Uh, I'm not really Nostradamus. So, so it, it presents in these characteristic areas. If you're leading off a seborrheic dermatitis as your lead-off differential on a scaly rash on the hands, then all of us, are gonna, all of us dermatopathologists are going to kind of sniff and be like, who, who thinks that seborrheic dermatitis affects the hands? There's not a lot of seborrheic, uh, there's not a lot of sebum glands down there. So it's not a good differential for, for certain areas of the body, but it's certainly a good differential on the head and neck area for sure. Uh, at its simplest form, you know, the, I went to the, uh, 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 the uh, uh, Great Clips person, Great Clips or, or whatever it is. I don't have any vested interest in any of this. And, and the person was examining my scalp as they were cutting my hair, and they had no idea what I was, that I was a dermatologist. I was on my way home from work. I didn't feel like talking or anything like that. And, and she was giving me all this advice about, you know, your scalp seems a little dry, and, you know, you should do this and do that. And, and I was like, oh, yeah, okay, great. I'll look right into that. And... Um, but uh, dandruff in its simplest form is, is just really the, the mildest form of seborrheic dermatitis. Everybody has a little dandruff from now and then, depending on where you live, what you do, uh, things like that. But it's, it can be very, very subtle, or it can be pretty, pretty severe. And in fact, you know, it's, it's not uncommon to refer, refer to a condition like this as seborrheic because it gets pretty hard to distinguish psoriasis from really, really severe seborrheic dermatitis. And to some degree, it's probably not critical that you do, particularly if that's the only area affected. Uh, you're not going to, you know, race out and put this guy on, on a huge number of biologics before you try other agents and things like that. So many of the therapies overlap. And so it's probably acceptable that we consider that seborrheic and, and under the microscope, it's often hard for me to be sure if I'm looking at seborrheic dermatitis that's really, really bad or, or, or psoriasis on the scalp because the overlap is similar histologically as well. So, so it can range in its presentation for sure. Uh, this is something that most people uh, aren't super familiar with. This is what's called seborrhea petaloides or petaloid seborrheic dermatitis. I had a person the other day who said, you know, Dr. High, I have these weird annular plaques on the face. I don't have any idea what my patient has. And I said, well, did you consider petaloid seborrheic dermatitis? And they said, what's that? But uh, petaloid seborrheic dermatitis is this, this type of really severe seborrheic dermatitis where it looks like flower petals. Does everybody see how there's like a central stamen here? And then there's the, like these petals radiating out to the side. And that's, that's called seborrhea petaloides or petaloid seborrheic dermatitis. And it's certainly a more unusual presentation. Sometimes African-Americans, I did a study many, many years ago, it was published in the JAD and everything like that, of seborrheic dermatitis in African-Americans causing dispigmentation issues. Whoops, I got to go back. Uh, dispigmentation issues, uh, the lightening of the skin here, and you can see the greasy yellow uh, uh, quality of the scale right here, and then this, this area of lightening of the skin. 
And that can be sometimes the debilitating thing. They're less concerned about the itching or scaling because that may vary from person to person, but they're very concerned with why their skin looks lightened in those areas, and that's because of the acids that are produced by pterosporum and things like that. So you, you make the diagnosis usually clinically, the distribution. Uh, uh, biopsies of limited utility. I can't really tell super well if something's seborrheic dermatitis or psoriasis under the microscope alone without some measure of clinical correlation. I might be able to push you one direction or the other, say I kind of favor this or I favor that, um, but it's not something that can be you know, cut and dry decided from a biopsy for sure. Uh, treatment, you know, we all have our own various ways. Do we cut down the number of yeast? Do we treat the inflammation? Do we do both? Things like that. And, and you know, I, I don't really think, I think each person's unique. Uh, for, for many, many years at the, at the turn of the millennium in 2000 through 2004 and things like that, I was using itraconazole uh, for, ver for very, very severe cases. And then a few years later, it was published. But we were actually doing it before it was published. Um, but sometimes in really, really severe cases, you do have to use an oral agent for just a little while to gain control of severe seborrheic dermatitis, and that's okay. Uh, it's not unheard of, and, and it's actually published. Uh, so so uh, any of these things are, are fine. Uh, I think, you know, kind of how you handle it is going to matter a little bit about where you live, what your supervising doc prefers to do. There's no one huge magic bullet for every case. You just kind of want to adjust your therapy uh, for the person affected. Uh, the next diagnosis to talk about is pityriasis rosea, and we don't know what causes pityriasis rosea. You know, we, we do have our own acronyms, as Dr. Wells alluded to. We always call this PR. You know, I think the patient has PR. But we don't really know what causes it. Is it a virus? What is it exactly? There's all these different theories. Probably the leading theory is that it's one of the herpes viruses, not herpes simplex, not varicella zoster, but like HHV6 or 7, something like that. Uh, and we, we think that it comes at certain times of the year, and it comes in certain individuals, people of a certain age, things like that. So it probably is some kind of viral prodrome or something in like that involved in the disease. Most of the patients are usually like in the, in the first three decades of life, maybe the four, up to the fourth decade of life. It it's kind of makes me snicker a little bit when somebody turns in a path form, and it's from the lower extremity in a 71-year-old, and pityriasis rosy is their leading diagnosis, because that doesn't really fit with what we know about the disease. It's generally a disease of younger people, and it's generally a disease of the t-shirt distribution. If you think about it, where a t-shirt's touching your body right now, my undershirt underneath my, my top shirt, every place that the undershirt is hitting me is, is, is prime, uh, prime real estate for pityriasis rosea. And it's unusual to see pityriasis rosea outside of a t-shirt distribution. It can, be, it can occur, but it's unusual. The good old Herald patch, that's the area that appears about a week before the daughter lesions or so. Uh, here shows the precision of dermatology. I like to point this out when I do lectures to other groups. It's either present in very, very few cases or essentially all. It depends upon which paper uh, you read. But it's 12 to 94% of cases have a Herald patch. And then the other lesions uh, uh, come later on. Uh, there's, there's all these diagnostic criteria, but in truth, uh, you, you kind of learn to recognize pityriasis rosea for what it is, uh, to be honest, but you have those. The, the probably one thing that you always want to make sure that you exclude is secondary syphilis because, again, it, uh, pityriasis rosea is a disease of younger people. Secondary syphilis, although there is, it is gaining traction in the 50 and older group, uh, it is a disease more of, of the younger patient population, and, and it presents in kind of a similar clinical way. So that's one thing that you always want to, to worry about, particularly if the patient has palmoplantar involvement. That's unusual for pityriasis rosea, very, very common for secondary syphilis, so a, an important thing. Here's a herald patch, the bigger uh, lesion that appears earlier on, and then the sister uh, daughter lesions that appear 
uh, a week or two later. Same thing, Harold Patch, these are his patients that we've seen, Harold Patch with the daughter lesions everywhere else. And you notice the age of the patient, the distribution is kind of typical for most common PR. This slide right here just emphasizes that you always want to consider secondary syphilis in the differential, particularly with these pants. So this is a, a very, very negative <laughs> prognostic indicator. So you'd want to be very, very careful about secondary syphilis in this age group. But, but it actually is pityriasis rosea here. And, and you can kind of see the, you, can, you have to kind of cross your eyes a little bit, but you can see that the, the lesions of pityriasis rosea often fall in this Christmas tree-like distribution of the skin tension lines uh, of the back. And so secondary syphilis would be a very, very valid uh, concern uh, in, in this situation. Uh, here's more examples of pityriasis rosea. In, in people of darker skin types, Mediterranean, African-American, dark Hispanic people, you can see atypical variants of pityriasis rosea. And the darker your skin, probably the more likely you are to see unusual variants. You can even see uh, involvement of inverse distributions. You can see, this is a case I published a number of years ago of an African-American with papulosquamous lesions on the palms and soles that wasn't syphilis. Uh, and, and here's bullous lesions and papular lesions as well. So, but, but that's not your average white guy that has that or white gal. It, it's probably somebody with a darker skin type where you think more seriously about atypical presentations of PR. So you make the diagnosis usually based on clinical presentation. A biopsy is suggested, but there's, no, again, not a real role for me to say, aha, this is pityriasis rosea. There's nothing else that this can be. It overlaps with guttate psoriasis. It overlaps with minor uh, dermatitic conditions. Uh, one thing you always want to look for is lymphadenopathy. Lymphadenopathy is, is much more common in secondary syphilis because that's a spirochetemia. The spirochete is, is spreading throughout the body, and, and that's more indicative of secondary syphilis than it is pityriasis rosea. You might a little bit of you know, shoddy lymphadenopathy in the cervical nodes with uh, PR, but you don't see systemic lymphadenopathy in PR usually. That's a sign that you need to do another serologic test to exclude secondary syphilis. And again, secondary syphilis is on the rise. So. What we do at the University of Colorado is we usually make a, a six or 12 week follow-up appointment for pityriasis rosea. And if they break it, uh, we know that we were entirely correct, that that was the right diagnosis. If they show up, then we say, gosh, maybe we didn't have the right diagnosis because it's a self-limited disease and it's usually gone in two to four months. And, and so the person usually is of an age where they just simply, you never see the patient again. And so you have to just trust that, that your diagnosis was correct. There's no standardized therapy for pityriasis rosea. People have tried UVB, they've tried prednisone, they've tried things like that. There's really no standard, uh, there's no, uh, no evidence-based medicine that, that any one course does anything at all. Uh, sometimes there's strange patterns. My, I remember my sister, when I, well before I was a doctor, uh, she got pityriasis rosy about 17, 18 years old. I, I'm two years older than her. I never got pityriasis rosy. I have never, ever had it, don't know anything about it. So, so uh, it, it's kind of a mystery how, how people acquire the disease exactly. Lichen planus, another good disease to think about today as you can compare and contrast it to psoriasis. We don't know what causes lichen planus, unknown etiology, just like everything else in this talk, basically. Uh, it travels in certain circles, kind of travels with the same types of autoimmune diseases, Hashimoto's, all those kinds of things. Um, but we don't know exactly what causes lichen planus. In some parts of the world, it's very, very highly associated with hepatitis C, but in other areas of the world where hepatitis C isn't as big an issue, uh, certainly we still see lichen planus, so that doesn't explain uh, the entirety of the disease at all. It's the disease of the peas, purple polygonal papules and plaques, coalescing and uh, uh, penis, uh, anything, basically anything in dermatology that you can think of with a pea, uh, you can kind of lump it in 
Lichen planus, and that kind of makes it easy uh, to remember in that regard. Uh, lichen planus is also the one that has the Wickham stria, the white lines, either on top of the purple lesions or on the buccal mucosa. That, that's a common place to see Wickham stria. And then you expect it in certain areas, the flexors of the body, where a psoriasis, I'm sure everybody is beat in by now that uh, psoriasis is an extensor-based disease. Uh, really, lichen planus is a flexor-based disease, and that's different about it. Uh, the, the important thing, probably the most important thing on this slide, is always, always, always look at the mucosa in somebody with lichen planus. Because if they have mucosal involvement, that's a sign of disease that's going to be more recalcitrant to treatment, harder to treat, and it's also going to last longer. Uh, with, with typical cutaneous uh, limited uh, lichen planus, you might expect the disease will resolve on its own in one or two years, and you can shamelessly take credit for it yourself. Whatever you happen to be doing at the time is what cured the lichen planus. Um, but uh, in, in truth, when they have mucosal involvement, it's more likely going to be your, your patient for years or decades even, uh, because it's more recalcitrant to treatment, more likely uh, to, to hang around. Here's an example of the purple polygonal papules and plaques, and you can see the whitish lines on the top. Lichen planus is the least scaly of all the papulosquamous diseases. It's not a disease that's particularly scaly, and I'll, I'll prove that to you if you come to the dermatopathology workshop or something like that. Um, but it's the least scaly of the papulosquamous diseases. Uh, of course, I couldn't pass up the, uh, to throw in another P, uh, the penis. So lichen planus often affects the penis. That's a very, very common sight. And you can see, again, the purple polygonal papules and plaques uh, and the penis and you, you can see that they're coalescing here and they have this Wickham stria on, on the top of them. Uh, here's another guy treated recently. He had involvement of the wrists, involvement of the ankles, involvement of the penis, purple polygonal papules and plaques, uh, and he has lichen planus. So uh, that, that's kind of how it presents. There are certainly a lot of, of things to be aware of in the mucosa. You can have ulcerative disease that's just very, very painful and very, very debilitating. And then you're always looking for this type of Wickham stria on the buccal mucosa. Everyone has a bite line, so everyone can turn to their neighbor, open their mouth really, really big, and you can see a bite line where the teeth come together. So, so the one thing that I do when I, when I give this talk to medical students at the University of Colorado is I emphasize that everybody has a bite line, because as soon as they leave this lecture, I'll have like 125 medical students, all of whom have lichen planus. So, so just keep in mind that everybody has a bite line, but you're looking for Wickham stria that's up and away from the bite line. And, and is lacy and reticular involving, you know, way down. I can see it way down here. That's not a bite line. That's something else going on. So, so be, be aware and capable of making the distinction between those two things. There's other variants like hypertrophic lichen planus, particularly notorious on the front uh, pretibial surface, probably just becomes hypertrophic and, and exaggerated because of scratching. People run the heel of one foot down the, the pretibial surface of the other. Uh, things of that nature is very common to see. Uh, lichen planus can cause nail disease, things like pterygium, this destruction of the nail right here. That's pterygium, another P word. Uh, so again, lichen planus is associated with all the different P words uh, for sure. Uh, not to be confused with median nail dystrophy. This is just simply a person who picks at their nails every single day, and then they, they relentlessly per, uh, pursue every single dermatologist in town to cure their, their toenail fungus or thumbnail fungus or whatever it is. Uh, but it's just a, this is just median nail dystrophy, most common upon the thumb and caused by picking of the nail. So lichen planus, lichenoid drug eruptions can look identical to lichen planus, both clinically and histologically. To me, under the microscope, I might see some eosinophils to kind of point in the drug direction, or I might not. doesn't mean that it's not uh, drug-related, even if I don't see eosinophils. Uh, so there's all these implicated drugs. Probably the most common is, is thiazide, diuretics, hydrochlorothiazide, and then even gold-containing liqueurs for your gala tonight. You might have what is it called, Goldschlager, I think. 
it's been a number of years since I was in a fraternity, so I'm not as, as hip on all the uh, terminology that used to be, but um, I think Goldschlager has little tiny gold flakes in it, and that uh, it has been associated with, with lichen planus as well, consumption of Goldschlager. So you, you treat it, it's very, very itchy disease, right up there with dermatitis epidermis for the most itchy and annoying disease. Treat it with high dose, uh, uh, high potency steroids topically or high dose oral steroids like the guy that you saw with the penis and the ankles and the, and the forearms. I treated him with 60 milligrams of prednisone a day for a month. I put him in remission and then I started taking the prednisone away. So uh, a very, very important drug. Uh, uh, condition to treat because it's so itchy and debilitating. Rarely I go to oral retinoids, things of that nature to control the disease. Uh, there, there is interest in that new drug that we just heard about uh, being used for lichen planus, not only for, for psoriasis, but for lichen planus as well. There's been a small trial of of people on that. You know, that's not particularly surprising. Sometimes we use etanercept and things like that for uh, dermatitis, even though it was designed for psoriasis. So, uh, you know, it's just kind of expanding the uses of the off-label, the off-label uses of the drug. Uh, here's, a, here's some of the patients they treated in that study. Again, it's a psoriasis agent that's designed and approved for psoriasis, but people are trying it in other conditions, off-label, of course. Oh, here's a, a question. I think they kind of wanted to test some of these for a San Diego meeting, but the most sensitive and cost-efficient test to detect secondary syphilis is? What do you think the most useful diagnosis is? That's exactly right. Yeah, anybody that was in the process of testing, I don't want to use all your time, or texting, I want to use all your time in that purpose, but yeah, that, that's exactly right, and I'll point out why. So secondary syphilis is something that used to be very, very well known. Here's a poster made by the government, don't sue me or anything like that, uh, made by the government in the 1940s, uh, and, and you certainly wouldn't get away with that uh, today, but then secondary syphilis, awareness of secondary syphilis kind of went away for, for a number of decades because we had so many antibiotics and the and syphilis organism is exquisitely sensitive to penicillin. And so it went away for a long time. Then it kind of resurfaced with the MSM and HIV po positive population later on. And so now we all have to be aware of it again. So secondary syphilis is a papillosquamous disease. Uh, it looks exactly like pinteritis rosea under many circumstances. It can, but it, secondary syphilis is a great imitator. It can do anything it wants. It can present in any way. And, and often one of the most important things is searching around for that lymphadenopathy because it is a spirochetemia. It's disseminated spirochetes. They've moved from beyond a primary chancre to your entire body. And so they can cause lymphadenopathy anywhere. And you always want to look at the palms and soles of any person with a papillosquamous disease because palms and soul, involvement of the palms and souls is very, very highly suggestive of the possibility of secondary syphilis. This poor man was bitten by a spider on his penis right here. Uh, and uh, no, not really, guys. He didn't really get bit on this one. So, but that's what he thought. He said, I had a spider bite on my penis, and then the spider bite went away in a month or so, and I started to get this papillosquamous eruption on the rest of my body. So he, he, was, he was certainly bitten all right, uh, but not by... Not by a spider. So this is uh, secondary syphilis, and what the spider bite was, was his primary chancre. That was his chancre that went away, and then typically a few, few months after the chancre goes away, you get the spirochetemia and you get the secondary syphilis. The, uh, this, this young man right here, uh, he was HIV positive. He has tinea versicolor in the background, if you look at the kind of mottled appearance of the skin. And then he also had a papillosquamous uh, eruption involving the palms and soles. So this person has a trifecta, of, of HIV, pityriasis, versicolor, and also secondary syphilis. And again, anytime, particularly in a Caucasian, you see a palmoplantar uh, distribution to the eruption, you need to uh, consider secondary syphilis for sure. 
It can do anything it wants, though. It can look sort of like psoriasis on occasion. Uh, this is rupioid secondary syphilis. This is, uh, rupioid is a word that means oyster shell-like. Uh, and so it looks like oyster shells, but that's secondary syphilis. This is a person with a Jarrett's Herxheimer reaction. He had secondary syphilis and began Keflex, given to him by the emergency department for a presumed UTI. And he, all his lesions swelled up. That's the Jarrett's Herxheimer reaction. It starts, or it's a reaction that begins with early treatment of syphilis. Tons of the spirochetes die, and you get this sudden immune boost, and your, and your lesions become swollen. You feel ill and unwell. Also happens in, in Lyme disease as well. Happens in, in any spirochete disease when you, when you treat a patient early on. So the most important thing from this slide is, is, you know, I'd love to have the biopsy. I make 40 bucks off every one you do. But in truth, it's hard to see the spirochetes under the microscope, and it's not the most sensitive means of making the diagnosis. The RPR-VDRL, it's a cheap $11 test. You can do it yourself. When I worked at the CDC STD clinic, I used to do the test myself. And it has essentially 100% detection for secondary syphilis. So if I had only one test to do, just do a serologic test for syphilis. It pretty much takes it off the table unless they have HIV and they have some kind of abnormality of antibody production. So it's nearly 100% uh, uh, sensitive for, for secondary syphilis and is the best test to do. Uh, here's a, a study I did a number of years ago. I, I actually know a lot about syphilis. I'm probably one of the last people in America to actually see a lot of syphilis. I, I used to, to see tons of syphilis in Dallas. I used to be an expert in, well, I still am an expert in the field, but it doesn't come up as much. Um, but we actually invented an antibody that shows you the spirochete. We used to use a silver-based test to look for the spirochete. This is the epidermis, this is the dermis, and here's a, a spirochete. But the silver also highlights all the melanin at the dermoepidermal junction is really, really hard to, to read. So we developed an antibody for the spirochete itself. So everything that's brown in these pictures is an actual spirochete. So you can have a whole bunch of spirochetes, you can have a few spirochetes, or you can have a very few, few a number of spirochetes, but they're all spirochetes and they're all in the epidermis, just mil mere microns away from the epithelial surface. So secondary syphilis is an infectious rash. You probably won't get it unless you like grind all around on it or something like that. Um, but it is an infectious process and the spirochetes are really, really, really close to the skin and that's something to be aware of. So that's secondary syphilis. Um, uh, so uh, for the, for the uh, kind of preliminary question on this, a 46-year-old Caucasian woman has an annual eruption on the neck, upper chest, upper back, and bilateral arms. Which lab result would be most suggestive of subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus, also called SCLE? Yeah. People are crushing it. So the, the right answer is, is of course, the anti-Rho, anti-SSA antibody. That's exactly correct. So, so we'll talk about lupus a little bit. Discoid lupus and, and subacute cutaneous lupus are both kind of cutaneous forms of lupus erythematosus that we would be the principal specialist in. We would know more about it probably than the typical rheumatologist. Uh, I'm not going to talk too much about systemic lupus, things like that, because that's really their domain. But two diseases that we should know a lot about as cutaneous professionals is discoid lupus and subacute cutaneous lupus, and they present in different, different ways. Uh, let me elaborate. So the typical person with discoid lupus is an African-American female. That particular person is nine times more likely to have discoid lupus uh, than, than anyone else. So an African-American female is where you look for this disease uh, uh, most, and it typically presents in, these scarred, in this scarred fashion with these scarring plaques that have this tricolored appearance. There's usually central hypopigmentation, peripheral uh, normal pigmentation, then this very, very peripheral 
hyperpigmentation. That's from the inflammatory process, and it leaves these scarring plaques. Discoid lupus is really a disease of the nipples and up. People call it a supernumerary process, so it's really, really unusual to present with discoid lupus only below the nipples or something. I only have discoid lupus on my right wrist. That would be exceptional. That would be unusual. Sometimes people get discoid lupus that spreads from their head and neck down to the rest of the body, but to not have any involvement of the head and neck really militates against discoid lupus. And the reason it's so disastrous and you have to jump on it so early is these are scarred plaques and it affects the head and neck and any hair that you lose due to discoid lupus is, is lost forever typically. Uh, another important place to look, one of the earliest places to look for for discoid lupus is this conchal bowl. A really, really skilled dermatologist will go in the room and immediately, if it's an African-American person they're suspecting discoid lupus, they'll start to examine this conchal bowl. Uh, and that's the really, the, that separates master dermatologists from people that are just, eh, you know, I'm, I'm a dermatologist, I'm pretty good. Uh, th th that's a real master that goes in and looks at the conchal bowl like that because that's where you, sometimes where you see the earliest, earliest disease. Then subacute cutaneous lupus erythematosus, note the patient is completely different. Uh, for SCLE, the typical patient is a, like a 40, 50, maybe early 60s uh, type woman. That's a Caucasian woman at that. That's really who gets subacute cutaneous lupus. That's whom it was originally described in, and that's really where you see the most disease. Can you see it in other people? Of course. But that's kind of the wheelhouse of activity is that white woman between maybe 35 and 55 years old. That's where you see a lot of subacute cutaneous lupus. And it really presents in two forms, typically either an annual lesion that can look a lot like tinea or erythema multiforme or, or uh, erythema annulare or anything else annular, and then psoriasiform plaques. And it's usually a, it's a sun-driven process, so it's a, it involves typically kind of the upper triangle of the back, the upper triangle of the neck, and the, the arms where you, where you typically wear short sleeves. That's where you see a lot of SCLE. Uh, here's an example of psoriasiform SCLE, and you can see the one difference from regular psoriasis is really it's a, it's a sun-exposed distribution. In fact, when I go to a baseball game and forget to wear sunscreen, that's exactly where I get burned, kind of a strip down here on the brachioradial arm. Uh, so, so the difference from psoriasis, although it's psoriasiform in appearance, is that it's not really truly involving the extensor areas. It's kind of more involving the photo-exposed arm right there. So the, the single best test for, for the possibility of SCLE is this anti-SSA, anti-Rho antibodies. That's really, really present in an overwhelming number of cases. And, and certainly, uh, you know, now that our tests get more and more sensitive, the Crystidia, Lucidae uh, uh, test and all those, those tests have gotten much, much more sensitive. Essentially, almost 100% of people have this anti-SSA, anti-Rho antibody. Uh, skin biopsy is suggestive, but it can look a lot like the dermatomyositis and other things. So one thing I'm always going to want to see in the end is, is an antibody profile uh, before we, we kind of finally make a diagnosis uh, on that patient. Um, again, it's a sun-driven process, just like discoid lupus is. If you were a vampire and you had either discoid lupus or subacutaneous lupus, I would probably never know if you were really a true hardcore, hardcore rule-following vampire. So it's really an ultraviolet-driven process. And in, certainly in Dallas, where I used to take care of a lot of patients with both conditions, we would see this cyclic activity of worst activity in the summer. Then they would go into a relative quiescence during the, during the winter, and then they would peak again uh, during the spring. So sun, sun exposure has a lot to do with it. And I'm not talking about laying out in the sun. I'm talking about like the 10 minutes that you get sun 
walking to your car or something like that, that's pretty important uh, for, for, for driving the process. I've even seen experts uh, in, in the field, and I, I, I invited one to, to speak to you tomorrow or, or Sunday, I can't remember which one, but uh, um, I think it's tomorrow. Uh, I've seen experts in the field that recommend you know, immediately moving your desk away from the window because UVA penetrates, UV gla uh, penetrates glass, and uh, I even, they, they've even on occasion asked patients to remove fluorescent lighting from their home and go with incandescent light to try to decrease the amount of ultraviolet light that they're exposed to during the day. And then, of course, with discoid lupus, the most important thing is to shut it down because once you have a scar, you can't grow, you know, you can't get blood from a turnip, you can't grow hair from a scar. So once the, the scalp is scarred down, you're, you're not going to be getting hair from it. Uh, so it's very, very important to shut the process down early. And so we often use intralesional injections to the plaques. Uh, we often use oral corticosteroids early on to shut the process down. And then probably the single most a uh, revolutionary thing is the use of oral antimalarials like hydroxychloroquine, uh, plaquenil. So, so, so when, when people first developed plaquenil, do you know what it was developed for? Don't be shy. It was a malaria drug. So, so hydroxychloroquine was developed for malaria. And it was developed in the, in the 40s when we thought that we were going to go to war with Japan and they were going to prevent us from getting quinine. And we were going to be sending all these patients into malaria, or these soldiers into malaria-prone areas without quinine. And so, so hydroxychloroquine was invented to be a replacement for, for quinine. And so, so uh, lo and behold, they, people figured out very quickly that they put all these soldiers on hydroxychloroquine and people that had autoimmune diseases, including you know, rheumatoid arthritis, which is not really our field, and, and including you know, uh, discoid lupus and things like that, they, they had improvement. And so now we don't even use it for malaria anymore. I have, I have certification in tropical medicine and hygiene. It's like invaluable in Denver. Uh, that's a joke. So, so, uh, but, but uh, you know, we, we use tons of antimalarials now that don't have anything to do with hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine would be a poor antimalarial now that we have better drugs. But we still continue to use it for, for, uh, for, for connective tissue disease. And so oral antimalarials are an important part of my armamentarium. I, I use hydroxychloroquine for, for a lot of different things. I even on occasion use it for dermatitis. So uh, the important thing about uh, sun protection factors, and I imagine Dr. Regal will talk about this uh, in greater detail, but there's this, this curve that's shaped like this with regard to SPF value. So this is increasing SPF value. This is percent of UVB blocked. And so the curve is not a straight line. So, so 100 is, you know, or, or 60 right here isn't twice as good as 30. At 30, you're blocking like 96% of the light. If you go up to 60, you're blocking like 99% of the light. So the, the curve is shaped like this. And this is why the Academy, American Academy of Dermatology and things like that, picks 30 as a good SPF number. They pick that because, well, you're blocking 96% of the light, and you have a pretty affordable product. Whereas if you go up to 120, 130, 140, you're blocking more of the, just a little tiny bit more of the light, but you're increasing greatly the, the price for doing so. And so the, the shape of that curve is really, really important. I imagine Dr. Regal will expand upon it tomorrow. But that's really, really the important thing. And that's why we, we usually say, you know, sunscre sunscreens are probably maximized at 30 to 50. And in fact, the FDA wants to just start marketing sunscreens as up to 50 and then 50 plus for everything else. Because now you can go in a drugstore and you can buy like 189 SPF and things like that. And so people, you know, thinking, oh my gosh, that's got to be like twice as good as, as 90. Uh, they're, they're buying it. But the curve is actually shaped like this. And that's really important to be able to draw that and explain it to your patients as to why SPF 30 is really good and, and you know, 50 is probably great and all these other things, there's a diminishing return at, at, at some point. 
Uh, it, the other thing is uh, that sunscreens are applied at two milligrams per centimeter squared for testing purposes. If you actually apply that, you look like my aboriginal war dancer right here. So, so no American actually uses sunscreen a, a, at the same level at which it's tested. So it's tested at two milligrams per centimeter squared. No human being actually applies it at that level. So we, we, we estimate that people actually apply sunscreens at maybe 25 to 30 percent of what, is, what, is, what it's tested at. So that means your SPF is, you know, if you're applying 30, but you're applying at one quarter the strength, then you're actually getting, you know, like seven and a half. So, so it's important to be, be aware that nobody actually puts it on at that level, and I'm sure Daryl will elaborate on that uh, tomorrow. But sun protection is really, really important. You can throw all these expensive drugs at people with discoid lupus, subacutaneous lupus, but if you never, ever uh, emphasize the importance of just avoiding the, the driving factor, sunlight, then you're really kind of doing a disservice to the person. You're, you're treating them with all these dangerous, toxic medications, and, and, and one thing they could do to improve their, self, their life, their lot, is just simply avoid the sun. So the next disease to talk about is pityriasis rubropilaris, PRP. Has everybody in here treated a patient with PRP? It's kind of a rare disease, but I see you know, several cases a year. Maybe I see those cases because they're ultimately referred to the university, but it, it does happen. Uh, we don't know what causes the disease. We certainly know how it presents, and I'll show you that. It, it's, a, it's a eruption that presents in such a characteristic fashion that I kind of suspect it just based on the way that the patient's telling me the story or that I'm hearing about the situation on the phone. I can kind of start to suspect pityriasis rubropilaris. Early on, you know, it's kind of a descending eruption. PRP usually begins on the head and neck area. And it kind of descends, and the longer it goes, the further down it progresses until maybe it causes erythroderma or involvement of your whole body. But it begins usually early on on the head and neck, and it typically has this orangish erythema to it, this orange-yellow color to the eruption that you don't see in other conditions, this kind of orangish-yellow uh, presentation, a descending eruption, very, very itchy on occasion. See, notice how it's kind of descending from her head and neck area, kind of going further and further down, has this kind of orangish-yellow erythema to it. That's very, very common. And, and here's another person. See the islands of sparing? Does everybody see the islands of sparing in the background? That's kind of characteristic of pityriasis rubropilaris too. So they have this orangish-yellow erythema, and then they have this, these islands of sparing in the back. And that's pretty consistent. You know, it's hard to recognize PRP in a non-white patient. Um, but in, in a Caucasian, that's a pretty characteristic presentation with these islands of sparing right here and the color. And then one thing you always want to look for is besides these islands of sparing, everybody see the islands of sparing? There's really only two things in dermatology that you would ever refer to as islands of sparing. Pityriasis rubropilaris, and the, and the other one is uh, dengue fever. And most of you guys will never see a case of dengue fever, but I've seen lots in Peru. So, so really those are the two diseases where you have these uh, white islands in a sea of red. That's kind of the, the, way to, the other way to think about it. And then the other thing you want to always consider in PRP, and I always end up asking the patient, uh, or asking the clinician on the phone is do they have a palmoplantar plantar keratoderma? A palmoplantar plantar keratoderma is very, very highly associated with pityriasis rubropilaris, and that's a thickening of the palms and soles. And that's very, very characteristic of the disease. Almost all these patients that I've treated, uh, they have a palmoplantar plantar keratoderma. But here's an important thing is that pityriasis rubropilaris can be a very, very hard diagnosis to make under the microscope, particularly if you write rule out rash. If you just send in a punch biopsy and you write rule out rash, 
it's really, really hard for me to get to that diagnosis. So this would be a situation where you'd want to include descending eruption, islands of sparing, things like that, because there isn't one pathognomonic finding for PRP. And even Dr. Whedon, who, op, uh, wrote, uh, who authors one of the most famous dermatopathology t uh, skin texts, uh, he, he says he's been humbled by the histologic diagnosis of PRP more than any other inflammatory condition. So what he means is he misses more cases of PRP than anything else. So you, so you want to be really, really careful. And so sometimes I say in the comment section, are, were you considering PRP? Because this could possibly be PRP. But if you're not considering that, I probably can't make the diagnosis. So help your dermatopathologist, the color, the descending nature, islands of sparing, and consider a rebiopsy because he's been humbled by the histologic diagnosis of PRP more than anything else. So hard diagnosis to make in isolation. You, you treat PRP in a lot of different ways. You can treat it with steroids. You can treat it with uh, uh, oral retinoids. Probably oral retinoids are the treatment of choice. That's probably what we do more often than anything else. If, if retinoids fail, then, then uh, we, we usually use uh, uh, methotrexate. Uh, and in fact, one thing I, I usually think of is if I'm seeing a patient that's a difficult case and they've been to a lot of community dermatologists and now they're coming to the university, if they fail steroids, then, then that, even, that, that even more often suggests that mm, maybe this is PRP because steroids just really aren't usually that effective. We usually almost always go with a retinoid and then methotrexate for, for failures of retinoids. One thing that we've done on, on rare occasion is, is we've used carbamazepine, the, the anti-seizure drug. And nobody knows why that works. I've corresponded with Mark Liebwall in New York and things, things like that. He also believes that it works, and I've used it on a few patients in the, in the West because there just ends up being a few doctors that treat a whole bunch of PRP because they just get all those kinds of crazy cases. Eventually, they roll down to them. And carbamazepine does work on, for PRP, but nobody really knows why. It's the strangest, weirdest thing ever. So uh, that's pityriasis rubra pilaris. Pityriasis lichenoides uh, is a family of diseases, and it really consists of two forms, either pleva, pityriasis lichenoides et variolaformis acuta, pleva, or PLC, which is uh, pityriasis lichenoides chronica. So we kind of take the whole rubric of pityriasis lichenoides and divide it into pleva and PLC, pleva and PLC. Pleva kind of presents in younger people with these kind of necrotic lesions. It's kind of the chicken pox that will never go away. That's kind of a buzzword for, for pleva is chicken pox that lasts way longer than chicken pox. And then PLC can present in a much more subtle way because it may last years or months or uh, months or years or anything else. So let's take a look at a couple cases. Nobody really knows what causes pleva or PLC. It certainly does occur mostly in younger patients. It's also called muca Haberman disease, pleva is. Um, but nobody really knows exactly what causes it. Sometimes we treat it with antibiotics and things like that, but that's really more empiric treatment than anything else. So uh, it's generally a disease of younger people. The chicken pox that doesn't go away is a very, very common way to describe pleva. Uh, and, and that's one thing to think about when you have that si certain situation. And then Muca Haberman, which is the other name for pleva, can pre present in more of a fulminant way, too, where they have systemic illness, things of that nature. This is an example of pleva. You notice that it's the necrotic lesions. It looks like, gosh, chicken pox would be a real consideration. But then you ask the patient, how long has this been going on? They say 12, 14 weeks. And you say, gosh, that's not really the course of, uh, uh, of, of chicken pox. This must be uh, pleva. So that's an important thing 
to keep in mind. Here's more examples of pleva, these necrotic papules, uh, kind of all in a different phase of, of, of eruption like that. That's kind of characteristic of both chickenpox and pleva. And then you use temporal information to sort it all out. Pityriasis lichenoides can either look more like psoriasis or it can look more like pleva, but it's usually even a longer, more protracted, less fulminant course when you have PLC. And PLC can be a very, very vexing disease to diagnose for sure. The next disease is Reiter's disease. Reiter's disease is very closely aligned with, with uh, psoriasis, can present in almost the same fashion. In some, ple in some cases, people wonder if it's kind of a molecular mimicry, similar event uh, that sets the disease off. But Reiter's disease occurs in a certain population. About 75% of patients with Reiter's are HLA B27 positive. And so this is a laboratory test you can just, if you're even considering Reiter's disease, you can just get an HLA subtyping done, and you can see if they're HLA B27 positive. And if they're not, that really makes Reiter's disease a lot less likely. Doesn't exclude it entirely, but, but moves it in the differential from number one to like number 14. Uh, makes it much, much uh, less likely. Now the, uh, it turns out Reiter was a Nazi, kind of a bad thing. Uh, so so uh, people are kind of de-emphasizing Reiter's disease now and prefer that you use the term reactive arthritis, but many people still call it uh, Reiter's disease as well. It just turns out that he was a very, very bad man. Uh, so so uh, it, it can be particularly severe in people with HIV and AIDS as well. So the classic triad for Reiter's disease is can't see, can't pee, can't climb a tree. Everybody remember that from medical school or PA school? Can't see, can't pee, can't climb a tree. That's the classic triad uh, of Reiter's disease, but there are certain histologic uh, clinical findings uh, that we want to know about in, in dermatology for, for, for sure. We do worry about the eye disease and the, and the joint disease, of course, but what we're really interested in is uh, things like keratoderma blenaragicum and circinate balanitis. Those are two common ways in which Reiter's disease presents. This thing must be, you might want to change the batteries on this thing before the, the next speaker. Uh, uh, this is uh, an example of Reiter's disease right here. And you can see it looks kind of papulosquamous as an African-American person. Looks a little bit like a papulosquamous disease of any kind. Can't really distinguish it uh, as Reiter's disease. Sometimes it causes folliculitis-like lesions. Uh, that's also seen in Reiter's disease. But this is probably how it presents more often than not. And you can see the flying squirrel beer here in the background. Uh, so so uh, th this person had chlamydia first, <laughs> and then he uh, uh, went on to have Reiter's disease. And Reiter's disease, when it causes this keratoderma blenaragicum, it often has this hemorrhagic appearance to it. So, so the, some of the plaques look papulosquamous, some of them look hemorrhagic or dusky, and that's a common way. I, I would say that's, that's how most keratoderma blenaragicum looks. Uh, and then circinate balanitis, you can see this, this very, very subtle uh, a plaque on the penis right here, that's circinate balanitis. And, and, and the patient, that, uh, the flying squirrel patient here, he had circinate balanitis, he had keratoderma blenaragicum, and then he had already been treated for chlamydia a few weeks prior. And so I just told him, hey, I know how this all comes together in one single unifying diagnosis here. Uh, here's another example of circinate balanitis of the penis, well circumscribed, would be in the differential with inverse psoriasis, other things of that nature. Here's more examples of the nail disease of Reiter's disease. So that's Reiter's disease. And again, one thing that you want to keep in mind is the can't pee, can't see, can't climb a tree. It's tried association with chlamydia. But then the blood test that you'll want to get at some point is the HLA B27, because that really makes it vastly more likely that you're right, or vastly more likely that you're wrong. The, the last disease to talk about, we're right on time, everything's good. 
<clears throat> is mycosis fungoides. It's something that I wouldn't want you to know a whole bunch about because there are specialists in this area who can take care of the patient better than you or I or anything else. But it is important to have it in your working differential and be able to move the patient forward to somebody who is a specialist in those areas. So there's this umbrella term of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. Cutaneous T-cell lymphoma is the big umbrella. And underneath it is mycosis fungoides. Maybe 80% of all cutaneous T-cell lymphoma is mycosis fungoides. So mycosis fungoides is a subcategory of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, and it's the most common subcategory of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. And it can present in a, a wide variety of forms. It can present as patches, plaques, tumors. Uh, it can even present as a person who's red all over, Cesare syndrome, red man type of phenomenon. So here's a person, uh, an African-American younger patient, and they have these hypopigmented spots, and they, and they were sent to us as rule-out vitiligo. Well, that's a kind of a funny, there are confetti patterns to vitiligo, but it would be unusual to have that confetti pattern uh, of vitiligo. Uh, and this person went on to have patch stage mycosis fungoides. And, and people debate whether it's more common in African-Americans or if it's simply easier to recognize in African-Americans because they're, they're darker skin type and so their white patches show up in greater contrast. Here's a person with kind of plaque stage mycosis fungoides. And by plaque stage, we mean you could actually rub your fingers over this patient. You could tell that something was wrong. Whereas in the patch stage disease, <coughs> The lesions are simply too subtle to recognize uh, by, by tactile sensation. So this is plaque stage disease. And then this is tumoral stage disease. And while this guy looks like Popeye, he's not eating spinach or anything like that, he actually has a whole bunch of tumor, uh, tumorous uh, lymphocytes invading the skin and leading to that appearance. So nobody actually knows why a person moves from patch stage to plaque stage, from patch stage to plaque stage, to tumoral stage, and not everyone does. It's important to stress to your patients, some people remain with patch stage or plaque stage their whole life, and their mortality is unaffected. In stage one, mycosis fungoides, they have a normal mortality. They'll certainly have this disease for a long time, but it won't affect their lifespan, and that's important to stress. And no one knows what moves somebody to the higher stages and even sometimes dying of mycosis fungoides. There's no good pattern. And here's the most important thing to remember. So far, all the evidence suggests that treat it, treatment of it makes no difference. So you can have a person with very, very early mycosis fungoides stage one disease, and they can elect to have treatment like, like nitrogen mustard or light treatment or topical corticosteroids. And that does not matter for their risk of progression as opposed to a person who says, you know what, I just kind of wanted to know what it was and it doesn't bother me, so I'm going to go now. That, that's completely fine. So there's no advantage to treating it unless the patient wants to treat the disease. It doesn't affect their risk of moving forward to another disease. This is Cesare syndrome. There's certainly a lot of reasons for being red from head to toe. Uh, vancomycin infusions, uh, Cesare syndrome, out of control psoriasis, drug reactions. There's all kinds of reasons for being erythrodermic. But one reason for being erythrodermic is Cesare syndrome. And Cesare syndrome is just the leukemic variant of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. So instead of having a lymphoma confined to the skin, you actually end up with the cells in the bloodstream. And so now it's a leukemia. That's the definition of a leukemia. And so it's leukemic variant of, of cutaneous T-cell lymphoma. That's what Cesare syndrome is. Extremely rare. Certainly many, many other reasons for being red from head to toe. But one of them is, is Cesare syndrome. 
So always consider the diagnosis based on the clinical presentation. It's very, very important to stress to these patients that it may be a hard diagnosis to make. And that's important for medical legal reasons, to protect your colleagues, to be informed, things like that. You can tell patients that it's very, very common because what might happen is you might end up with a patient whom you ultimately diagnose with cutaneous T-cell lymphoma mycosis fungoides, and they say, well, gosh, I've been seeing these doctors for six years. How can that be? Now you're telling me I have a lymphoma? Uh, what, what are these other people incompetent? So you want to say, no, no, actually, that's what happens in mycosis fungoides. That's the common way that mycosis fungoides is diagnosed. After years and years of equivocal biopsies, the average diagnosis takes uh, three years and six biopsies. Three years and six biopsies before a firm diagnosis of mycosis fungoides is rendered. So you say, actually, it's just, that's just the pattern in which this disease presents. It's very, very hard to pick up on early, and you certainly don't want to tell people that they have mycosis fungoides before you're sure that that's what it is. And so, no, actually, everything's been handled completely appropriately. That's just how this disease pre presents. You want to be very, very clear about that to patients. There's all kinds of different ways of treating mycosis fungoides. There are certain people that like to treat mycosis fungoides. I treat some, uh, but we actually even have a person at my facility who treats all of it who's not a dermatopathologist like me trying to do three or four different jobs, and that's really her only job is to treat mycosis fungoides. So it's easier to find a person who specializes in that area and move them along. So, so this is an interesting case. Unusual tan and brown macules located upon the trunk, and they were sent as suspicion of mycosis fungoides. Does that seem reasonable to everybody? Yeah, that's, I, I was like, wow, good referral. Yeah, that seems promising. Because uh, it's very often uh, uh, underneath the double protected sites of the body where you see mycosis fungoides. Why would that be? Why would mycosis fungoides involve the double protected sites? Because one of the treatments for mycosis fungoides is sunlight. And so, so if you're outside, you know, outdoors all the time, it'd be unlikely to first present with mycosis fungoides in these areas that are getting a lot of outdoor UV light. So it's very, very common to see mycosis fungoides in the double protected areas, the areas underneath your underpants and your, uh, underneath your undershirt, because uh, they're not getting much UV light. So, so mycosis fungoides was a very reasonable thing, but we asked this patient, what have you been doing lately? And she said, oh, you know, I went to Mexico for a seven-day vacation trip. We said, really, you went to Mexico? What, what, do you have your swimsuit? said, well, I have it at home. I can go get it. We said, go get it. Here's your swimsuit. Not the most fashionable swimsuit. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. But uh, it has these white areas and these blue areas. And in fact, everywhere that the, the swimsuit was white, she got preferential tanning. And every place that the sun uh, swimsuit was blue, she got some sun protection. And so she didn't have mycosis fungoides at all. She just had kind of a, a bad swimsuit. <laughs> So I'll always be thinking that we're right on time, everything's good, particularly considering that we didn't start right away. I know you guys have a business meeting in this room that you're supposed to stay present for. This is Dr. Miller, our, our OBGYN expert right here. And this is my daughter, Madison, who is clone A and looks exactly like my wife. And this is my son, Morgan, who is, we call clone B and looks exactly like me. So in my family, there was no blending of the, of the genes or anything like that. We just ended up with perfect clones of one another. So uh, we have about, uh, by my watch, we have about two minutes for questions, and then we'll start your business meeting. Thanks for your time, by the way. Did you have a question, ma'am? Right.
That's a good idea. So the question is SIBO psoriasis, and certainly for, for limited disease, it might not alter the treatment at all. You might still use things like Dermasmooth or something like that. might not alter the, the treatment at all, but what do you do about the comorbidities, which is what entirely, I, I was involved in kind of planning which speakers would come, and that's exactly why I had Dr. Gelfand come, because he's involved in a lot of the epidemiology of psoriasis. So certainly, when you're faced with the diagnosis of SIBO psoriasis, it probably does make sense to, to try as many different avenues for investigation as you can. So, so look at palm, uh, you know, besides looking at the occipital scalp, look at the elbows, look at the knees, look at the gluteal cleft for gluteal pinking, look at the nails for pitting, look at the oral mucosa for geographic tongue, which can be associated with psoriasis. Uh, take a family history. About one-third of people have a family history of psoriasis. Ask questions about, well, are you here really for itching or for appearance's sake? Because psoriasis in, in many studies is not that itchy of a disease. Certainly it is itchy for some people, uh, but usually they're more concerned with the appearance, with the flaking, with things like that. If you let them freestyle for a minute and they don't mention itching, then maybe that's a little bit different from some like a, a raging allergic contact dermatitis from, from a hair dye or something like that. So take as many different avenues as you can and try to plug them into your data set such that you can be like, gosh, I, I'm really more favoring seborrheic dermatitis here than I am psoriasis. But I think ultimately it is a good idea, she suggests, you know, writing to the, to the primary care doctor and saying, well, gosh, maybe it is appropriate to measure his CRP levels and some other things in this patient, send him to a rheumatologist for evaluation of joints, things like that, to see if there's something that can push you more in one direction or another, but usually it's not capable, you know, I can certainly speak for the dermatopathology side, I, no amount of, of biopsies is really going to allow me to confidently say there's no way that this is psoriasis or there's no way that this is sebo, seborrheic dermatitis because the overlap is just so substantial. So I think you got to try to take as much data as you can and plug it into a final diagnosis and that's the perspective of a general dermatologist. I'm not, I don't run a psoriasis only clinic or anything like that, but I am dealing with very, very complex cases. Typically, the patient that comes to my case or my clinic has seen a whole bunch of Denver dermatologists first, and so I have the, the unpleasant duty of trying to solve a whole bunch of misinformation and, and, and trial diagnoses that didn't pan out. So I can tell you that what I try to do is gather as many data points and then come up with some kind of gestalt feeling about whether this is more seborrheic dermatitis or more psoriasis. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, so the question is, is, is treating lichen planus uh, and, and uh, you know, different uh, treatments like metronidazole or something like that. I've never used metronidazole myself. Mark Liebal is certainly a friend of mine. We're, we're, we're close colleagues. We speak at each other's meetings and stuff like that. Uh, he, he, he apparently uh, published that he thought metronidazole was a good thing. One thing that I've used in lichen planus that I didn't directly mention here is griseovulvin. So griseovulvin. Was, was published a, a long time ago to be effective for lichen planus. And, and in my hands, I can get it to work. And in fact, I have a patient who's the, the, the mother of the CEO of my hospital who will only see Dr. High and will only treat her lichen planus with griseovulvin because it's so amazing. But then other people will try griseovulvin for lichen planus and have no success at all. So, so how much is placebo effect? How much is luck? Uh, things like that, nobody knows. But griseovulvin, metronidazole, things like that are things that could, could theoretically work. What I typically do with my lichen planus patient, my severe lichen planus patients, is I try prednisone at a pretty high dose. Like that, that young Arabic man, he didn't have a contraindication to doing uh, prednisone, so I tried 60 a day for an entire month. 
and I put them into remission, and then I take the prednisone away and see how long I can go in this remission. So that's typically what I do. When, when steroids don't work, I typically go with a retinoid. And then if a retinoid doesn't work, I typically go with griseovolvin. But there are some anomalous things you'll find in the literature. Like uh, uh, several years ago, there was a report of, of uh, uh, low molecular weight heparin being effective for lichen planus. You can find this article if you want to look it up. And so everybody was excited, low molecular weight heparin, that's awesome. Turned out it was only one lot number, one lot number from the manufacturer that seemed to have this strange curative effect of lichen planus. And when other people tried it with different lot numbers, they didn't have any success at all. So, so was it something in that batch of, of low molecular heparin? Uh, no, nobody really knows, and it wasn't really pursued. But, so, so you can get into the realm of empiric evidence pretty quickly. And what works for one person might not work for another person. But I generally go with high steroids, retinoids, because that has the most evidence. And then I go, I'm talking about systemic agents. Then I might go to something, and I showed you the off-label use of the brand new biologic, uh, th things like that. But I usually go high-dose steroids, oral retinoids, something else, typically. Okay, thanks. <laughs>